You can go ahead and take your Bibles and turn them with me to the book of James. Book of James. Last week, we, uh, we kicked off a brand new series in James uh, called Faith Works, and the idea behind that title uh, is that faith is not merely a passive thing. It's not uh, something that is opposed to action or intentionality. True faith, biblical faith, actually works. It actually does something. It fleshes itself out in day-to-day life. Contrary to what some people might think, faith is very practical. In fact, in this small book of James with, with only 108 verses, uh, it has packed into it over 50 imperatives, over 50 commands. And some of you are thrilled about that. You're thrilled to be in a book that is so bluntly practical. You don't, you don't want abstract, pie-in-the-sky, theological concepts, give me truth that actually operates on street level right here, right now in the nitty-gritty of life. And that's what you get with James. And James immediately begins his letter by throwing us into the deep end of the pool of Christian living, so to speak. Uh, He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't start out with a few uh, easy words. He starts out by writing something that is very shocking and something at first that can be very hard for us to understand. He says in verse 2, "'Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds.'" And some of you, when we first read that last week, you may have wanted to close your Bibles. Some of you may have wanted to throw your Bible across the room when you read that, uh, because that's not our normal response in trials. And James' original audience, on the run from persecutors, people who were far from home, people who were refugees in strange places, were probably more shocked by reading verse 2 than you are. I like how J.B. Phillips paraphrases James 1. He, He puts it this way, When all kinds of trials and temptations crowd into your lives, my brothers, don't resent them as intruders, but welcome them as friends. We find that to be a very alien concept, don't we? We tend to see joy and trials as mutually exclusive. We see them as something that, two things that can't coexist. Uh, and the only way we think to have joy is, is for there to be no trials and no affliction and no difficulty. If you've got those things in your life, then you can't have joy. And so, to get joy, you've got to remove those things. And James says no. James disagrees. Uh, he not only suggests that we can have joy in the midst of our trials, but he even commands it. And we have a hard time getting our heads around that and understanding that. And so, to help us, he begins to explain why you are to count it all joy. He says in verse 3, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and that steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. James is encouraging you uh, in the truth that God is actually sovereign over your trials. He's in charge of those things, and that He is for you, and He's not against you. Uh, He, in fact, has actually has a good purpose in your trial, which is spiritual growth and maturity. And if you remember, 
That illustration I shared with you last week, that word that, word that James uses for testing in the Greek, uh, dokimon, comes from the world of metallurgy. Uh, that process where you've got a piece of ore, it's full of weakness, it's full of impurity, and then it's put through the heat, it's put through the fire, and in the process, the impurities are extracted from the ore, and the metal worker can then take that ore, and he can shape it into something that's uh, not only more beautiful than it was, but also stronger. It's exactly what God is doing for you in your trials, and it is for that reason that we can have joy in the trial. Not, not morbid, masochistic joy in the pain, but, a, but joy in the confidence that the Lord is working something wonderful through the process that is benefiting you even now and will ultimately pay off later on. Now, that's really easy to say, isn't it? And if we're honest, it's very hard to put into practice. You know cognitively that God is at work and is producing in you steadfastness, but, but on another level, you still, you're still struggling to find peace and joy. And that's because you really need something more than mere knowledge. You need wisdom. That's the other piece of the puzzle that you need to have in place to help you to negotiate the trials of your life with a, a sense of peace and joy and stability. So if you're here this morning uh, and you're here as someone who is perfectly wise and you've got it all together, this sermon is not for you. You can tune out starting now. But for the rest of us, for the rest of us, we need to once again listen carefully to what James has to tell us. So, please stand with me now as we get ready to, with attentive ears and eager hearts, read the true and perfect and wise words of our great God. This is James chapter 1, and we're going to start at verse 5, and read on down through verse 8. God's Word says, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let's pray. Father in heaven, I must confess, these, these are the types of, of sermons that I approach with an extra measure of fear and trepidation because we're talking about hard things and because I know that there are people in this room that are going through hard things. And I know that I, in and of myself, do not have the power to produce hope and joy uh, and strength in the midst of the trial. I can't do that for anybody. And so, Father, I am, I am leaning on you big time. I'm, I'm leaning on you to speak words of wisdom through the Word of God and implant that wisdom in the hearts of my brothers and sisters here this morning so that they might have the wisdom of God and might experience the peace and joy and stability that they long for in the difficult things that they are going through. So, Father, help us all with that now. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Hey, real quick, media team, so I turned this little clicker on, and I didn't see any little, you know, digital displays, so I don't know if that is a bad thing or, or not. So... I may need one of you to come and run and look at this, or maybe it does work. I don't know. I'm stupid. I need wisdom. All right. 
So, so we learned last week that the trials in our lives, the trials in our lives are uh, tools in the hands of a good God to produce in our lives good fruit. And therefore, we can have joy in the trial. But because James, being the sensitive pastor that he is, knows that his readers are going to need help in this new way of thinking, and so he provides more encouragement, uh, which is why James not only teaches us in verses 3 and 4 how trials are benefiting us, but also then why he moves very quickly to verse 5. And again, I find J.B. Phillips' paraphrase here to be helpful in bringing out the sense of what James is getting at after describing the nature, uh, the testing of our faith. Uh, through the trials as God's process in developing mature character in us, Phillips then writes this in his paraphrase, and if in the process any of you does not know how to meet any particular problem, he has only to ask God. Now, often when a trial hits us, we do start asking God for stuff, don't we? But what do we typically ask God for in the midst of the trial? Uh, think about it. Uh, what do you feel like you need the most in the, in the trial? Going back to the example of metallurgy, when the heat is on, what do you ask for? We tend to ask for the heat to be turned off, right? Now, that's what I'm asking for. We ask for relief uh, from the situation, uh, healing for the body, healing in the marriage. We ask God to m- maybe move on the heart of our boss to give us that raise we need to relieve our financial burdens. That's often our instinctive response to trials. Relief is often our main top number one priority. Now, there's nothing inherently wrong with asking for relief. As a matter of fact, if you go to the end of the book of James, he's going to instruct the church to pray for healing for one another. So, nothing wrong with asking for those things. But in the beginning of this book, James holds forth the expectation that our prayerful response to God's process of sanctifying us through trials will prioritize a request for God's wisdom. And James is going to teach us three specific things about wisdom in our text today. And the first thing that he shows us is simply uh, the fact that we, we need it. We need wisdom. James starts verse 5 by saying, if any of you lacks wisdom. Now, in saying that, I don't think that James is saying that some of you don't lack wisdom. You've arrived, so, so you don't have to read the rest of this letter. Instead, I think James is saying the opposite, but how he words it is going to require everyone reading the letter to examine themselves and be humble enough to confess that they actually need wisdom in the first place. Because you'll never get wisdom unless you realize that, you're, that you actually lack it. One of the blessings that comes with trials is that trials are going to push you beyond your normal insight and wisdom. Trials will drive you past the end of yourself and will liberate you from the bondage of self-reliance and self-sufficiency. That's a blessing when that happens. Now, specifically, what is this wisdom that James says we need? <clears throat> well, first of all, What is wisdom not? Wisdom is not intelligence. Uh, Our culture today has elevated and exalted intelligence and education and PhDs, and we shell out millions of dollars to make sure our kids get into the very best schools, the very best programs, uh, to get the very most, the very, uh, uh, the most respectable diplomas, and, and we're told that the solution to society's ills, whether that's poverty or crime, or drugs, or war, the the ultimate solution 
to everything is education. If we can just get everybody smarter, then things will be fine. And yet, we do that and we emphasize that, and these problems in society continue to run rampant. More information, mere intelligence, a high IQ is not enough. It's why intelligent politicians or intelligent pastors ruin their careers and ministries through foolish scandals. It's why otherwise brilliant scientists with multiple PhDs attached to their names can tell you with a straight face that on the one hand, uh, it is impossible for your iPhone to come into existence by chance, by itself, but on the other hand, tell you that the far more complex human brain or the entire cosmos somehow amazingly just came about by itself, perhaps even from nothing. Smart people, but not wise. And the Bible goes a step further. Now, the psalmist says in Psalm 14, the fool in his heart says there is no God. Now, fool in the Scriptures is not a declaration of intelligence or IQ as much as it is a moral declaration. And the same thing is true with wisdom. Proverbs 9.10 says that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So wisdom, wisdom starts with God and a reverence and a awe and a submission to God and His ways. Wisdom is a way of life that is rooted in a worldview. It's a way of looking at reality, and specifically looking at it and responding to it in a way that is framed by the truth of God as revealed in His Word, in the Scriptures. Wisdom is never untethered from the Scriptures. It's not something distinct from the Scriptures. It it helps you to apply the Scriptures. Wisdom is what we need most to negotiate the road of life and the trials that come with it. And the Scriptures, wisdom is held out as a treasure a treasure which is so valuable that we should hunt it down and, and, and we should get it no matter what, no matter what the cost. And so you've got Proverbs chapter 3. It says, Blessed is the one who finds wisdom and the one who gets understanding, for the gain from her is better than gain from silver and her profit better than gold. Uh, she is more precious than jewels and nothing you desire can compare with her. Or in the very next chapter, I like, I like this. He says, The beginning of wisdom is this get wisdom. (laughs) That's the beginning of it. Uh, And whatever you do, get insight. Now, specifically in the context of James, wisdom means viewing trials and responding to trials from God's perspective. Wisdom is, as someone else put it, to know how to live God's way in God's world. Or in the context of James 1, you could say that wisdom is the savvy of knowing how to deal with trials in a way that pleases God and brings a greater sense of peace, joy, and stability to your life in the trial. And isn't that what we want? Well, if we really want that, James is telling us that what we need is wisdom. And so the second thing that James teaches us about wisdom is that we must ask for it. We must ask for it. Very often when we are in a trial, the focus of our prayer is mainly, God, get me out of this. God, give me relief. God, change the situation. Again, nothing wrong with that. But if that's the primary focus of our prayers, which ends and begins with our desire for relief, we're going to end up with a very frustrated prayer life. And we're we're always going to be very anxious and discontent because we know just from the verses we studied last week that sometimes it's God's will for you to be in that trial and stay in that trial. 
there, there will be times where God's priority for you will not be relief from the trial. God's priority for you is not immediate comfort, but it's holiness and Christ's conformity. But the good news that James gives is that there is a prayer that God will answer, a request He will grant, and it's a request for wisdom. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously. Literally in the Greek, it says the giving God. Ask the giving God uh, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. That's an amazing promise. I wonder how often we claim that promise. He will not leave you without resources in the trial. Let me ask you this. Think about the trial that you're going through right now. Uh, How often have you asked for the trial just to be done versus how often you've asked for God to give you wisdom through the trial? Compare those things for a moment. How often have you asked for the wisdom to to view the trial and how to live practically in the middle of it if this is going to go on for a while? And and let me ask you another question. If requests for relief dominates your prayers, think about this, if if that's true of you, if requests for relief is the thing that dominates your prayers, why would you spend more time asking God for something He hasn't guaranteed than you would for something you know that he wants to give to you that will help you navigate the trial rightly and help produce joy in the trial. You ask for something more often that he hasn't guaranteed than for the thing that he actually has said that he will give you when you ask. James says, ask God. Ask God. And the tense of the verb in the Greek suggests a continued action. It's not just like you you need wisdom one time and then you're good. (laughs) Thanks, God, for that. I've got it from here. It's not how it works. Uh, It's not that you just ask God uh, for wisdom when the worst trials hit, but you know what? You'll handle the small stuff yourself. You got that. No, no. You keep asking God. Uh, You keep asking Him for wisdom. Uh, this, This is to be woven into the very fabric of your life. This is your lifestyle. Get wisdom. The beginning of wisdom is get wisdom, and you and get it every day. Proverbs personifies wisdom as a woman beckoning all to come. And in chapter 8, you've got Lady Wisdom calling out in the streets, and she says, blessed is the one who listens to me, watching daily at my gates, waiting beside my doors, forever finds me, finds life, but he who fails to find me injures himself. Now, even though wisdom is pictured as a precious jewel, it's actually not hard to get. James says, just ask for it, and he'll give. Proverbs 2 tells us that if you call out for insight and raise your voice for understanding, you'll get what you search for. For the Lord gives wisdom, Solomon writes, and from his mouth come knowledge and understanding. But more than that, James says that he will give generously. God isn't stingy. But the word in the Greek means more. It carries the idea of a single-minded focus of sincere wholeheartedness. In other words, it's not just that God gives, and it's not just that He gives a lot, but He loves to do it. He is devoted to it. He he does it with His whole heart with gladness. Some of you may come out of a tradition or a teaching that portrays God as some sort of grumpy old man. Sure, He may help you out, but but you've really got to twist His arm to do it. You've got to bug Him. You've got to irritate Him. Uh, uh, 
Others of you may have a picture of God where you're reluctant to approach him because, because you feel he's too busy or he has more important things to deal with than your situation. But that's not God's attitude towards his children when they come to him in prayer. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? God loves to give good things to his children. And one good thing in particular he loves to give is wisdom. Remember Solomon? Remember the story of Solomon, son of David, king of Israel? God appeared to him in 1 Kings chapter 3, and he invited Solomon to ask for anything, uh, and, and he would grant that thing. That's a pretty incredible offer. I mean, imagine if God did that for you. Shows up one day, says, I'm going I'm to give you whatever you ask for. You just, it's like a blank check. You, you tell me what you want. What would you ask for, I wonder, in that situation? Solomon could have asked for all kinds of things, like more money, more power, did the defeat of his enemies. That's what many would do. But, but look at Solomon's answer in 1 Kings chapter 3. He says, And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David my father, although I am but a little child. I, I do not know how to go out or come in. Uh, you see what he's doing? He, he, lacks wisdom. he knows he lacks wisdom. He, he's applying James, 3, uh, James 1 here. He says, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you've chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? He's asking for wisdom. And how does God respond? Does God say, man, you blew it, buddy. I cannot believe you asked for that. Out of all the things, you, you did that? You seriously? No. The next verse says that it pleased the Lord that Solomon asked for this. God loved it. And he gave him wisdom. And he gave him other things that he didn't ask for because God is a generous, giving God. You know, you can send your kids to a top Ivy League college and shell out $50,000 a year, and they will get little to no wisdom in return. But you can go to God, the God of the universe, the one who has the richest depths of wisdom, Paul tells us in Romans 11, and you can get the wisdom from the creator of the cosmos for free. No tuition, no financial aid required. You don't have to have a great GPA or the right connections or, or be high up on the social pecking order. James says, if any of you lacks wisdom... This is for rich, this is for poor, this is for new Christians, this is for old Christians, this is for missionaries and for stay-at-home moms. Just ask, and it will be given to you with lavish liberality. Also notice that James, in verse 5, says God gives without reproach. In other words, God isn't going to give you a hard time for asking Him for wisdom. He's not bothered, He's not irritated, He's not going to say, well, didn't you just pray to me yesterday and you're back here already asking for more? What's up with you? Uh, humans can be like that. If you bug people long enough, they get, they get tired of you. They get annoyed. They get irritated. So, sometimes someone may help you, but they are grumbling about it. They, they may grumble about how much trouble it is or, or how many times they've helped you in the past. That's why Proverbs 23 says, Do not eat the bread of a man who is stingy. Do not desire his delicacies. For he is like one who is inwardly calculating, Eat and drink, he says to you, but his heart is not with you. God's never like that. His heart is always with you. 
He always gives without reproach. He's not digging up skeletons in your closet and holding it against you. Don't you feel sometimes that you just don't have the right to approach God for anything because of past sins? Have you ever, have you ever been in that situation before? And you think, man, I, I just can't, I can't come to God. I, I'm, just, I'm a mess. Well, if you're a mess, you actually qualify for approaching God for help. Congratulations. And, and you know what? Left to yourself, you actually don't have the right to ask God for anything. But Jesus earned that right for you, which is why you come to God the Father, not in your own name, but in the name of Jesus the Son. Uh, God's not going to say, well, I I remember what you did last year, and so I'm not going to give you anything. Uh, Whatever you did last year or last night, Christian, is covered by the blood of Jesus, and there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. His heart's always with you. He gives without reproach. Psalm 103, verses 13 and 14 says, As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. So the first thing James teaches us about wisdom is that we need it. The second thing he teaches us is how to get it. The third thing he teaches us is how we are denied it, how we are denied wisdom. Uh, It's important to recognize that while God invites us to ask Him for wisdom in our trials, and while He generously and graciously gives it, the promise that we'll get wisdom is is not unconditional. There is one thing that will keep us from getting what we ask for. Verse 6 says, Let him ask in faith, with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Now, some people get really nervous when they read that verse. What do you mean I can't doubt? And they they treat it like Linus with the Great Pumpkin. Remember that episode of Charlie Brown? Great Pumpkin? Halloween episode? Old people know what I'm talking about. Young people are like, what what are you? I don't, what? Great Pumpkin? Uh, What kind of heresy is that? Um, Linus, he's out in the pumpkin patch, and he's waiting for the Great Pumpkin with Sally on Halloween. And and the Great Pumpkin is going to come and give out presents to all the kids. If they don't doubt, he will come. And Sally gets mad and fed up, and she storms away and abandons him. And Linus, you remember what Linus says? Linus calls out to her, and and he says, If the Great Pumpkin comes, I'll still put in a good word for you. And then he says, Good grief. I said, said, If. I I meant when he comes. When he comes. I'm doomed. One little slip like that could cause the great pumpkin to pass you by, he says. Christians are sometimes like that with God. And they read this section of James thinking that you must be fully convinced with 100% perfect faith all the time, and if just the slightest little doubt comes, even if something just flashes in your mind for a millisecond, like, I wonder if the Bible's true. You ever have weird things like that sometimes just pop into your mind? If that happens, it's all over. You're doomed. God's not going to give you anything. Friend, I want, to, I want you to be at ease, because that's not what James is talking about here. We know this from the very character of God in his interactions with flawed, sinful, imperfect humans. Remember the man who came up to Jesus, uh, wanting him to heal his son, and Jesus calls him to faith, and the man says, I, I believe. Help my unbelief. He clearly has less than perfect faith, and Jesus doesn't rebuke the man, doesn't chide him. He responds to his weak faith and grants his request. So, going back to James, he's he's certainly not making perfect faith a condition for receiving the wisdom of God. Instead, the word doubt, the word doubt in verse 6 means to separate between, to make a distinction. It carries the idea of being divided against oneself, to be at odds with oneself. 
So the doubt here is not as much directed towards God's ability to give wisdom as much as it's directed towards self. It's as if, as one teacher put it, it's the inner uncertainty that you have about whether you really want God's wisdom or not. This is a man, in other words, with divided loyalties. He is, verse 8 says, double-minded. Literally, that word in the Greek is two-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D. It appears to be a word that James coins himself uh, to describe this doubter. We don't find this word anywhere else in Greek literature. He made it up. Uh, The single-eyed, sincere, wholehearted devotion of God in his giving in verse 5 is contrasted with a doubting man who has double vision. He's insincere in his desire to receive what God has given. Why? Because he doesn't trust what God will give him. He doesn't trust that God's answer to his prayer is the best way. It's the person who says, I want to go God's way unless it runs against what I really want. Uh, We can trace this problem all the way back to the beginning where the serpent tempted Eve to eat the fruit that God had forbade her to eat, and the essence of the devil's temptation was to get her to mistrust the wisdom of God, to doubt whether God really had her best interest in mind and would give her the very best. He says, has God really said? And remember what the text says in Genesis 3, And when she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruits and she ate. Eve did not trust the wisdom of God, and she sought a wisdom of her own detached from God and detached from His revealed Word. Sometimes, double-minded, two-souled people come to me seeking pastoral guidance, seeking wisdom. A crisis has hit. trial has come. They want help. They want to talk. They want to pray. And and that's great. Come. I I love to do that. But when I start giving them counsel from the Scriptures, giving them wisdom from the Word, and the counsel that I give runs against the grain of what they really want to do, they reject that counsel, and they pull away, and they go a different path. Why? Because like Eve, they trust their wisdom more than they trust God's. Because Because they like the script that they've written for their lives more than what God wants. And if God doesn't comply with their script, they'll find another path, another way, another religion that will rubber stamp the thing that they want. Augustine, an an early church leader in the 4th century, was in his youth in slavery to sexual lust. And in his book, Confessions, he admits that he used to pray, Lord, make me chaste. Lord, make me pure. But not yet. That's double-mindedness. We see this in 2 Kings chapter 17 describing apostate Israel. Uh, In 2 Kings 17 verse 32, verse 32 says they feared the Lord. Verse 33 says they also served their own gods. Verse 34 says they do not fear the Lord. In other words, outwardly on a superficial level, they seem to fear God, but in their hearts they really don't. They love other gods, and if they don't fear God, they have rejected the way of wisdom because the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And what's the result of double-mindedness? Well, going back to James, he tells you in verse 8, the two-souled person is unstable in all of his ways. Uh, The very thing that he was looking for in the trial, peace, joy, stability, He's not going to get it. Verse 6 says, such a man is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. That's life for the unstable man. 
Uh, When things seem to be going good, I'll be happy, but then when things change, I'm devastated. You see, their happiness, their, their sense of joy is built on unstable ways. It doesn't last. That's why the psalmist says that the sorrow of those who chase after other gods will multiply. Whether your God is a metal image, or whether it's material possessions, or whether your God is relief from your trial, or any other thing besides the one true God, in the end, any weak, uh, superficial happiness will fade, and the end result will be sorrow. Ultimately, the wisdom that God will give you is going to be a wisdom that will help you to have joy in your trials, not because God is immediately making the trial go away, Instead, the wisdom of God is teaching you that God's way is better than your way, that God's story is better than the one that you have written, and that God knows how to care for you better than you know how to care for yourself. That's wisdom. You think about Joseph in the book of Genesis, his story. If young 17-year-old Joseph was in charge of writing the script of his life, do you think for a minute that it would have included being betrayed by his brothers, thrown into a pit, sold into slavery in Egypt, falsely accused of attempted rape, thrown into prison, and forgotten for years and years and years. Who writes that for the script of their story? Don't, don't you think at every point along the way, uh, if, if, uh, if Joseph, don't you think that Joseph would have written the script differently at every point along the way if he could have? When he's thrown into the pit by his brothers, he he would have rewritten the story. Uh, I'm not going to be in the pit. My brothers are going to love me and think I'm awesome. He's he's accused. He's falsely accused. Uh, He he, he would rewrite the story and say, no, 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 no. No, everybody here actually thinks I'm the most wonderful person in the world and would never do anything like that. And and that she would be punished for falsely accusing me. That, That would be how he would write the story. Or if he's in prison, he would rewrite, the, he would take up the pen and say, no, no, no. And, and Joseph immediately was vindicated and, and released from prison. That's how he would have written the story. That's how any of us would have done it. Don't you think he must have wondered, what, what's going on here? <laughs> Especially in light of the spectacular promises that God made to Joseph, and, and none of them were seemingly coming to fruition. And yet, through all those horrible circumstances, God was weaving together an incredible tapestry of redemption for His entire family, with the result that one day, this ex-slave is standing before his backstabbing brothers as the second most powerful man in Egypt, and he's telling his brothers, do not be angry with yourselves because you sold me here. Notice Joseph is acknowledging his brother's responsibility in the situation. But then he turns to them and says, don't be angry with yourselves. It was really God who sent me here, and he did it to save many lives. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. That's not just good theology, that's wisdom. To perceive God's benevolent hand even in the worst of trials. And don't think for a minute that at the end of it all, Joseph was sitting there thinking, man, I I could have written a better story for my life than what God did. No way he's thinking that. Or consider Habakkuk, who starts out his book complaining to God, but by the end of the book, he is a changed man. And he writes this, Though the fig fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. That's all bad. That's a trial. (laughs) 
But then he says, yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. I will have joy in the trial. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. That's wisdom. In the midst of the worst possible disasters and trials, Habakkuk can still have joy in the trial. Why? Is he rejoicing in the pain of loss itself? No. Again, that would be morbid. Instead, his joy is in the Lord. Why? Because he knows, verse 19, that God is on his side, that God is his strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. As as someone once wrote, Habakkuk can have sure-footed confidence in God and can live on the heights even amid extreme circumstances. That's wisdom. It's the old, what Habakkuk says is the Old Testament equivalent of what Paul wrote, uh, he, he, he said that he um, could do all things through Christ who gave him strength, wh- whether things were going good or whether things were going bad. That's wisdom. Uh, what's the common thread between those biblical examples? And there's many more. Uh, the thread is that their trials are viewed not through, their, not through the skewed, limited lens of our earthbound human perspective, but through the lens of God's heavenly, divine perspective. And when you have that kind of wisdom, it changes everything. It changes how you think, which in turn changes how you feel, which in turn changes how you act and governs the choices you make in the trial. There's nothing more practical than that. And it's this kind of wisdom that you need more than anything else in the trial. But until you can get to the point where you'll say, not my will, God, but yours be done, until you can get to the point where you can hand over to God the script of your life and trust Him with the eraser and trust Him to rewrite the story according to His wisdom, until you get to that point, you will never experience peace and joy and contentment and stability in the trial. You see, in our own sinful flesh, we love ourselves and we have a wonderful plan for our lives. And when your prayers begin and end with you, and when your main goal is for Him to bless your life plan instead of being willing to trust His, and when you're so afraid of God's good plan for your life because you think you have a better one, and so you are, you are clinging to your plan as tightly as you can, as long as that is happening, you will be double-minded, two-souled, unstable, anxious, and not receiving anything that you need from the Lord, not receiving the wisdom that you need from the Lord. But if you can begin to let go of your plans for your kingdom, and when your priorities begin to move towards submitting to the ways of God in His kingdom, and you cry out to God for wisdom in the midst of your pain, then you will begin to say with the Apostle Paul, not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. Notice that the grounding for Paul's hope and joy and, uh, and suffering in the middle of his suffering, the, the grounds for that is the fact that Christ died for him while he was yet a sinner, while he was ungodly. Christ, whom the Scriptures call the wisdom of God, did something that the world deemed to be very foolish. He went to the cross, and he paid the penalty for our sin, for our double-mindedness, for our lack of trust in him, for our attempt to discard his wisdom in favor of our own. 
And whoever trusts in the Lord Jesus Christ will be saved from the judgment they deserve because Christ was already judged on their behalf on the cross. Now, if you're here this morning as an unbeliever, that's the most important thing for you to know. Proverbs 24, 14, it says that if you find wisdom, there will be a future and your hope will not be cut off. If you want hope for your future, if you want to avoid the judgment of God, if you want a glorious, joyful future in heaven with God, then know that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Turn away from your sin, turn to Christ, whom 1 Corinthians 1.30 says became to us wisdom from God, and trust Him with your very life. If you're here as a believer and you are going through a fiery trial, then know that the wisdom of God tells us that the offering up of His Son is the ultimate proof that God is for us and not against us. And if He did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him generously give us all things? He'll give us all things, all the strength, all the peace, all the joy, all the resources we need in the trial all the things that are available from God every minute of every moment in your trial. He will give those to you. Your hope in the trial is grounded not in the promise of immediate removal of the trial, but grounded in the reality of the one who went through a greater trial than any of us have been through to rescue us. A trial that the world would deem foolish. A trial that even his disciples thought was ridiculous. Where when Jesus talked about his sufferings, his upcoming trial, Peter rebuked Jesus and said, this is not going to happen to you. And Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. You do not have your mind set on the things of God, but on the things of men. You are trusting your wisdom over God's wisdom. And if Peter got his way, and if God removed the trial, Peter would be in hell right now. Which is one more reason, one more piece of evidence why we need to ditch our wisdom and our reason in the midst of the trial and embrace God's. We think we know so much, and yet God knows better than you or me. And the wisdom of God tells us that His cross is the sign that no suffering, no affliction, no trial can separate you from His love. Indeed, Paul tells us that on the basis of the cross that we will be able to to bear our cross, and not just to bear it, but that through our trials, Paul writes, that we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure, he says, that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord." Receiving and believing and banking your life on that truth is wisdom, and I pray that God would give it to our church this morning, right now. Let's pray.